Giving thanks to God is not only something we do over meals or when things go well. Thanksgiving is a commanded duty, giving us a moment of pause to consider the work of God through our Lord Jesus Christ as He has touched our lives, the One who is our Mediator and our Savior. Our Old Covenant reading coming from the Psalms, Psalm 50, a Psalm of Asaph. Psalm 50, two verses only this morning for our Old Covenant reading, 14 and 15. Beloved of the Lord, by inspiration of God, the psalmist says this, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Paul writing to Timothy, the elder of the church at Ephesus, 2 Timothy and chapter chapter 3, the first five verses, by the same spirit that moved the psalmist Asaph and all of the prophets of God, so does the Apostle Paul write. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, with all of its warnings and all of its duties. Now according to God's providential orchestration of all things, Each and every year, our nation, the United States of America, pauses to give thanks to the God of heaven and earth, as the pilgrims did, recognizing the mercy of God's provisions in all of life's situations. The difference, however, between what the pilgrims and the Puritans did in the celebration of Thanksgiving and what the secular state encourages is that the pilgrims acknowledged God as the benefactor of mankind, whereas the state does not. Giving thanks for the secularists is simply being thankful for things rather than the giver of those things. And I'm afraid that many Christians today are thanking God for the things that God has given to them rather than thanking God for exactly who he is. And this is just another attempt by the state to remove God from the memory of the American people and their providential American history. Now, once the memory of God's mercy is removed, the fact that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, once that memory is removed, or once there's a transition of why we give thanks on Thanksgiving, once that's removed, the state then can move in. The state can then be set up to be as God, sovereignly ruling not only men's lives, but their consciences as well. And so their desire, the state's desire, is for men to give thanks to the state as benefactor rather than God. And this is exactly what the state is doing. And more so now, it seems, than ever before. The state is giving as many perks as possible to their citizens, even those coming in from other nations, in order to get a response of thanksgiving for all that the state bestows upon them. 
And the reason is because they want the glory. They want to be seen as the benefactor. They want that adulation. They want that devotion. The state gives this. The state gives that. The state gives the other thing. So let's adore the state. Let's give thanks to the state. And let's recognize then, as the state would have it, let's recognize that we can't live without the state. Because the state has become our benefactor. The state has become our mediator between our poverty and our prosperity. The state has suggested that Thanksgiving is simply a day of appreciation for those things that we have as human beings and as American citizens because of the state's care for us. That is exactly what is undergirding all of these perks. To shift our thinking from God to man, from God to the state, in this definition that the state has given Thanksgiving, There is no room for God. There is no room for the work of God or in the establishment of our nation and the sustaining of our lives by His direct decree of mercy. There's no room for God because the state wants to push God out in order to move in as God. So make no mistake about it. America still exists today and is upheld only by the sheer mercy of God Because God has willed it. And so, once again, the state in its rebellion against divine authority has sought to remove all remembrance of God from the American mind. The only stronghold keeping the memory of God in the Thanksgiving celebration is the church. And once the church fails to recognize who it is we are to be thankful for, then, of course, America will go down that graveyard spiral never to think of God again when the celebration of Thanksgiving is. And this is just one other reason why the state is trying so hard to silence the church and the Christian community because they want to be God. Now, if you remember, many years ago, the first attack was upon the Ten Commandments. Let's remove the law of God out of the mind of men, out of the the secular community, because we want to compartmentalize the secular community and put it in a vacuum outside of God and and then remove the law of God because we know that the law of God means liberty for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and where that law is, there is liberty. So the first attack upon the people of God was remove the Ten Commandments. Remove the monument. Then it was upon Christmas. Then upon the historical statutes and anything that reminded Americans of their providential history. Now, whatever you might think of the landmarks of America, good or evil, good or bad, whether it's a statue or a Christmas or or, uh, be a Christian or pagan, the secular saw that these things, these, these icons, were just another way to reconstruct the future. And they said, well, we don't want to reconstruct the future according to providential history, so let's destroy them and reset the future according to our, our design, our Ideas. These are the tactics of the great secular, what is called the great secular reset. And so remove the Ten Commandments and you could reestablish the ethical construct of right and wrong according to a humanistic standard, a humanistic agenda. Remove Christmas and you erase the memory of the coming of the king and his dominion kingdom because that's what the incarnation was all about. It was about there's another king and that is one Jesus, not the state, not man, but Christ. So let's get rid of Christ. 
let's get rid of Jesus as the sovereign king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And let's keep him in the manger because that makes everybody feel a little bit more comfortable. So remove the icons of history and you reshape history. The removal of all of these iconic symbols, as well as some of the holy days, is a direct assault upon the nation that God has established and the people psychologically. Just recently, the state claimed that it could cancel Thanksgiving. Just remember last year, the state said, no more Thanksgiving. We have to protect you. We have to be the great physician and protect you from getting sick as if Anyone could protect anyone from getting sick other than the sovereign creator of the universe, the great physician himself. And once again, the state claimed that it could cancel Thanksgiving in order to protect it. In other words, it said, we have the authority to stop you from being thankful. And the fact is, as we all know, the fact is the state cares little for the citizenry. The state cares little for the health of the citizenry other than its control over them. And so the question is, why is Thanksgiving such an important holiday and its celebration so critical to America's godly heritage? And why should we fight to keep its original meaning alive? And the place that you fight is not only in the church, but in your homes. So it would not be something out of the ordinary before you're carving into that Thanksgiving turkey To ask the question. Ask the question of your children. Go around the table and say, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And what are you thankful for? And begin to recognize that we have never been thankful enough for the great mercy that God has bestowed upon us. So, why is Thanksgiving such an important holiday? And why is its celebration so critical to America's godly heritage? And why should we fight to keep its original meaning alive? And the answer is, it is this... Precisely because Thanksgiving is a public declaration of God's goodness upon our nation and the lives of the people of God. It's a public declaration. And that's what the state doesn't like. And this is why you have the bully pulpit when the president gets up to say, well, we're going to give $450,000 to these people here coming in over the border and these people here and everybody gets a stimulus program and you kids with your, your families with a lot of kids, you're going to get stimulus here and stimulus there. That's a public declaration that they want to be the benefactor of man. So why not publicly de- declare, why not publicly then declare Thanksgiving as being thankful to the one who gives Not only things, but himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Noah Webster said this in his definition of thanksgiving. He said, a public celebration, notice, a public celebration, screaming from the housetops, a public celebration of divine goodness, a day set apart for religious services, especially to acknowledge the goodness of God, either in any remarkable deliverance from calamities or danger, or in the ordinary dispensation of His bounties, the practice of appointing an annual thanksgiving originated in New England. Consider the following questions. What is the biblical definition concerning the act of thanksgiving? Secondly, to whom are we to be thankful? What are we to be thankful for? When are we to show forth thanksgiving? Why are we to be thankful? In other words, what is the root of thanksgiving? And finally, how do we show that we are sincerely thankful? And that's the real question. How do we show, you could say 
you're thankful all day long. Oh, I'm really thankful for this. I'm really thankful for that. What are the actions connected to true, divine, biblical thanksgiving? Consider first. The biblical definition of thanksgiving. The word actually means, in the scriptures, the word actually means to hold out one's hand in loving adoration. It's also used in a form of worship and praise. It is a submissive act of the will, acknowledging a kindness done which was unwarranted, but extended nevertheless without any strings attached in love. Unwarranted thanks. Unwarranted blessing and then the giving of thanks. The Hebrew word for thanksgiving is actually the word which means to praise. So whenever we give thanks, we're praising God for something He has done that was unwarranted by us. We we didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. And yet He bestowed it upon us. And so to render thanks is to render praise. In addressing the hypocrites in Psalm 50, and that's what Psalm 50 is all about, if you read the whole psalm, it is addressing the hypocrites. Asaph warns that thanksgiving is actually part of the duty of man, not just the Christian, but all men. Because all men are to express thanksgiving for their very lives, to be created in the image of God. Notice what he says. He says, offer unto God thanksgiving in verse 14, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. The overall message of Psalm 50 is actually a rebuke upon the religious hypocrite, and there are many, who is determined to act out various religious rituals, but refuses to offer God the sincere, and there's the key word there, underline sincere, sincere thanksgiving, glory and praise due God. Asaph is admonishing the hypocrite to mend his ways by reflecting upon the unseen Savior who is only seen through the eyes of faith. And while the hypocrite is able to perform outward works in a show of religious observances, the hypocrite is unable, as well as unwilling, but he is unable, because of the wretchedness of his soul, he is unable to manufacture sincere gratitude for the work of grace. If he does this in any way, if he, if he does this in any way, speak of thanksgiving, he does so without sincerity. Because the focus is not on God, but the focus is on the self. Luke tells us as much. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as that man over there, that publican. He prayed thus with himself. The focus was not on God. He wasn't thankful to God. He was thankful that he was such a righteous man. And yet, he verbally gives thanks, yet his heart was far from the love of God and love toward his neighbor, rendering his thanksgiving unacceptable, even damnable. For he did not go down to his house justified, but the publican did. The unregenerate is unable to be sincerely thankful for the various providences that have blessed him and guided him throughout his life simply because he has not actually experienced. He has not actually experienced the work of grace. Only by the work of grace can we be truly thankful. So this hypocrite thinks that, that, that he is special in some way that he deserved whatever happens. Psalm 50 is a wake-up call for all of us. 
all of us who have reaped an abundance of God's blessings daily, daily, moment by moment, in the good times, in the bad times, reaping all of the blessings of God and yet remaining in a posture of murmuring, discontentment, thinking that we deserve more than God has given. And how often are we discontented? Well, Lord, you know, I've been really good. I haven't missed church in in, in years. So you should give me something else. Because Thanksgiving is the opposite of discontentment. Thanksgiving and contentment go hand in hand. Jonathan Edwards notes that, he says, affections that are truly spiritual and gracious arise from those influences and operations on the heart which are spiritual and divine. Now, according to the Puritans, Edwards and and others, Thomas Shepard, Asaph, and some of the psalmists, they are exposing two kinds of hypocrites the legal hypocrite and the evangelical hypocrite. Notice what Edwards says. He says, there are two kinds of hypocrites. The first, the legal hypocrite. They are deceived with their outward morality and external religion. The other, the evangelical hypocrite, he is the one who is deceived with false discoveries and elevations which often cry down works and men's own righteousness and talk much of free grace, but at the same time they make a righteousness of their own discoveries Oh, look at me, how wonderful I am. I don't do this, I don't do that. I'm such a moral person. That's what he's saying. Make a righteousness of their own discoveries and their humiliation and exalt themselves to heaven with them. Asaph identifies the first hypocrite, the legalist, as one that is deceived by the keeping of outward ceremonials. Notice verse 9 through 13. The Lord speaking, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goat out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field. They're all mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? In other words, these things are mine. You're giving me back. You're doing these ceremonies. You're giving me back what is mine. So in these verses, Asaph identifies the evangelical as well as the legalist who is actually an antinomian. He hates the law of God. He refuses the covenant, the covenant of grace. He might relate to it, but he refuses to be obedient to it. He is void of the love of God. He is void of the love of his neighbor. He is not being thankful sincerely. And that is the test of sincere love and appreciation toward God. A thankful heart. A thankful heart. A continuous thankfulness. Notice what God says in verse 16 of Psalm 50. But unto the wicked, God says. Now, you have to understand this. Asaph has been talking about those who understand God, who understand the covenant, but are outside of his grace. They have an intellectual knowledge, but they're outside of his grace. And then he says that they're wicked. Unto the wicked, God says, what have you to do to declare my statutes? In other words, you were declaring my law, you were declaring my statutes, you were speaking about my word, my covenant, but he's calling them wicked. Or that thou shouldest take as my covenant in thy mouth, seeing that thou hate instruction and carest not for my words, you're casting them behind you. These are the hypocrites that are unthankful. So Asaph tells both of these types of hypocrites, the religious, evangelical hypocrite, and the legalist that they are outside of the grace of God because of their lack of thanksgiving. And so he says, here's your remedy. Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. The problem with the hypocrite, first of all, the problem with the hypocrite, he doesn't know he's a hypocrite. 
the worst part of deception is self-deception. But the problem with the hypocrite is that he holds onto a false hope, a false confidence that he is one of God's elect. He never ever turns around and says to himself, maybe I should examine myself. Maybe I should really examine myself to see if I really have a heart for God, really have a love for the Savior, really are thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe I'm not that thankful. But the hypocrite doesn't do this. The hypocrite thinks that because he's done something or he is something, or he knows something, that he's okay with God. So he holds on to this false hope, a false confidence that he is one of God's people. Again, Jonathan Edwards observes this. When once a hypocrite is thus established in a false hope, he has in those things to cause him to call his hope into question. That oftentimes, by the occasion of the doubting of true saints, you see, if you doubt, that's a good thing. Because if you doubt whether or not you're a child of God, you'll go back to the scripture, you'll go back to your, your prayer closet, and you say, Lord, I have a crisis of faith. You'll go back and you'll examine yourself. But if you are so self-confident, you'll never do this. And this is what Edwards is saying. He says, at first, he hasn't that cautious spirit that the true saint has. That great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation and that dread of being deceived. The comforts of the true saint increases awakening and caution and a lively sense of how great a thing it is to appear before an infinite, holy, and merciful God, who is judge. He says, But false comforts put an end to all those things, and dreadfully stupefy the mind. Secondly, the hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness, and the deceitfulness of his own heart, and that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. Those that are deluded with false discoveries, Edwards continues, and those false affections are ever more highly conceited of their light and their understanding. End quote. So let's ask the next question. The obvious answer to whom we should be thankful to is God. We are not merely to give thanks for things or situations, and that's what we always do. Now, are we to give thanks for situations and things? Absolutely. But we cannot stop there. We have to go beyond that. We have to give thanks to the God who gives us these things and orchestrates these situations. For He is the one who is worthy of thanksgiving. He freely gives us all things through Jesus Christ, our mediator, orchestrating all things and all situations for our benefit and for His ultimate glory. And we give thanks to God that we are being used of God and that He can be glorified in our thanksgiving and in all the situations that He orchestrates. Next, what in particular should men in general be thankful for? Mercy. The sheer mercy of God. It is only the sheer mercy of God that unregenerate men and women and boys and girls are not immediately dispensed with and sent headlong into the abyss of God's fiery furnace of hell. Not only does God not send the reprobate immediately into hell, He causes rain to fall upon them, the just and the unjust. He causes rain to fall upon them in the same way that He does the saint. And He says this here in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love ye your enemies. 
and do good and land hoping for nothing again and your reward shall be great and you shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. He's even kind to the unthankful but the unthankful will finally find their way into the abyss. The general mercy of God in his long suffering should be enough to cause men to cry out, every man to cry out in humble thanksgiving and praise for the time that God has allowed them on this earth to enjoy the beauties of the earth and life itself. And yet as a result of the hardness of men's heart, they remain unthankful. Paul may actually be referring to Psalm 50 and the religious hypocrite when he writes to Timothy, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. Lovers of their own selves lead the list of those who are unthankful. So when are men, especially Christians, to show forth thanksgiving? Paul cuts through all of the confusion when he tells the church at Thessalonica that in everything, in good times, in bad times, in frightening times, in difficult times, in everything, we are to give thanks because we don't know why things happen. We don't always know why they happen. Why does someone die? Why does someone live? Why is there justice one day and injustice the next? Why is this happening and that happening? Why do we get sick? Why do our loved ones get sick? Why is the world in a blaze under tyranny? Why, why, why? Because God is orchestrating all things for His glory. He is orchestrating all things for the good of His church. And we are to give thanks in everything. And notice what Paul says. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, you saints. So drawing from the law of God in Leviticus 7 verse 12, Asaph reminds the hypocrite that a thankful posture, notice, a thankful posture is an essential component when offering up the required ceremonial sacrifices of peace and that thankful posture does not exhibit itself only when things are going well. Thanksgiving is to be rendered to God for everything at every occasion. It is the posture. It is not just the the response. It is the posture. We think that Thanksgiving is a response. It's not a response. It shows itself in a response, but it's a posture. It's where we are daily to be thankful. A sincere heart of Thanksgiving is, is what yoked the sacrifice of peace with the people and which made the sacrifice acceptable. If, if the sacrifice was made without thanksgiving, it was unacceptable. So during the Old Testament period, whatever was offered, whether it was the cakes mingled with oil or the anointed unleavened wafers or fine flour, it was unacceptable if it was offered without thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was the main component. It wasn't so much the ceremonials. It was the thanksgiving. That was the main component of the ceremony of peace and remains so throughout eternity. Because without a thankful heart, there is no sincerity. It becomes nothing, just a ceremonial. And so those that have experienced peace with God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, by His mediation, by His blood sacrifice, and by His sovereign orchestration of all things, we, as God's people, must remain thankful. That should be our posture. Now, it was not so much the material cakes, but what it signified. It signified the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was something more to this sacrificial offering. This offering was made with an oath, and it was coupled with a vow. In other words, it was a requirement. Notice what Asaph says, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. What does that mean? 
Well, Adam Clark explains. He says, Now these were offerings in their spiritual and proper meaning, which God required of the people. And as the sacrificial system was established for an especial end, to show the sinfulness of sin and the purity of Jehovah, and to show how sin could be atoned for, forgiven and removed, this system was now to end in the things that it signified. The grand sacrifice of Christ, which was to make atonement, feed, nourish, and save the souls of believers unto eternal life, and to notice and to excite their praise and thanksgiving, and to bind them to God Almighty by the most solemn vows to live to Him in the spirit of gratitude and obedience all the days of their lives. This is the reason why Christ died, not only to forgive us of our sins, not only to make us holy, but to excite our praise, to excite and inflame our thanksgiving, and then through that, by thanking God, continually having that as our posture, continually having that as our posture, bind them to the Almighty, by the vows that we take when we proclaim Christ as our Savior. This should be our spirit of gratitude and obedience all the days of our life, Clark says. He continues, he says, And in order that they might be able to hold fast faith and a good conscience, they were to make continual prayer to God who promised to hear and deliver them that they might glorify Him. That's the posture of the saint. A thankful heart. The requiring of a thankful heart. The rendering of sincere thanksgiving established a spirit of gratitude which was required in payment of Israel's oath. Biblical vows, if they were to be valid, had to be voluntary and they had to be given with thankfulness, a sincerity in everything the people were to give thanks. The vow was a promise that in everything the people of God were to give thanks from the outpouring of gratitude for the Lord and His work. That was the promise. That was the vow that was to be taken. This is the intent of Asaph when when he counsels the hypocrite, when he counsels the men who refuse to give thanks. And this was also the intent of the apostle when he counsels the Thessalonians at Thessalonica to give thanks for everything and with every situation. The Reverend George Barlow comments, notice what he says, It is our duty to be thankful. It is our duty to be ever grateful. The Christian can meet with nothing in the way of duty that is not a cause for thanksgiving. Whatever suffering may be entailed, when we think of the ceaseless stream of God's mercies, we shall have ample reasons for, notice his phrase, uninterrupted thanksgiving. Uninterrupted thanksgiving. Now observe the connection the apostles make between prayer and thanksgiving when writing to the Philippians and the Colossians. Notice what Paul says. Be careful for nothing. In other words, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, uses that phrase again, by prayer and with supplication, with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Notice, if it was just prayer and supplication without thanksgiving, would that be acceptable? And according to Leviticus, no, it would not be. So he says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Notice what he says to the church of Colossae, Colossians 2.7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. 
abounding with thanksgiving. It's not enough to say thank you. Abounding with thanksgiving. The Reverend George Barlow again observes, he says, the secret of a happy life, the secret, everybody want to know what the secret of a happy life is? Is in harmony with the divine will of God. It is the will of God that His people should be rejoicing, praying, and grateful. And this will is revealed by Christ as declared in His gospel, as received in His church, and as observed by those in communion with Him. What a revelation is this! Not of an arbitrary demand of the impossible state of the affections toward God, but a beautiful and conciliatory discovery of the largeness of His love, and of the blessed ends for which he has redeemed us in Christ. The will of God supplies constant material for gratitude and praise. These are the three marks of a genuine Christian. Here they are. One, to rejoice in the mercy of God. Two, to be fervent in prayer. Three, to give thanks to God in all things. The secret of a happy life. Now, if one were to take careful notice of the various psalms, one would immediately see that there was a powerful and obvious theme throughout the psalms. And what was the theme? Praise and thanksgiving. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets have lifted up the name of the Lord in thanksgiving and praise. Notice, Psalm 26.6, I will wash my hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar. O Lord, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell all of thy wondrous works. I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name, and let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, and declare his works with rejoicing. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and will call upon the name of the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praise upon the harp unto our God. Psalm 69, Psalm 95, Psalm 100, Psalm 107, Psalm 116, 118, and 147. Isaiah picks up on this. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Jeremiah harmonizes with this when he says in Jeremiah 30 verse 19, And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. Notice, when one is saved, what is the response? What is the result? Out of them, out of the elect shall proceed. What? You can't help but thank God. When you recognize what your end would have been without the mercy of God, how can you not give thanks? Out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. What all these Old Testament prophets were praising and thanking God for was not only what He had done in their history, but moreover, in anticipation of what he was going to do through the Lord Jesus Christ in all of history. And so when Paul speaks of the giving of thanks, he often focuses upon the aspect of the spiritual and temporal victory effectuated by the resurrected Christ. Notice 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. In 2 Corinthians 9.15 Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift, and that gift is the Christ. Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Revelation 4.9 and 11.17 And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. I just want to give you a footnote here. The four living creatures that are over the throne of God have to be a picture of God Himself. Because nothing is over the throne of God but God Himself. It is a picture of God. And you think about this. If the four living creatures are are falling down on their faces and giving glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne, is God thanking God? Does God thank God? And one might say, well, absolutely, Jesus Christ, every time He turned around, He was giving thanks to the Father. Is not Jesus God? Does not God thank God? Does not God glorify Himself? Does He not ever live to glorify Himself? And then has He created us in His image and given us the Spirit? Then we are, not, are we not then to glorify God and to thank God? So why are we to be thankful? In other words, what is the root of thanksgiving? Well, consider just for a moment the root of thanksgiving. The root of a thankful heart is love toward God. If you love God, you'll be thankful. When the heart is filled with love and devotion to God, it is reflected in thanksgiving. And this type of love focuses on God and His redemption through this crucified and risen Lord Christ. Love toward God is expressed most beautifully and wonderfully and powerfully in thanksgiving. And there's no other way about it. If you really love God for all that He has done in your life and doing and will do, and how He has established the world on the, on the basis of Christ's redemption, how could you not give thanks? If you do not have a thankful heart, I can tell you this. If your posture is not thanksgiving, then we have to examine ourselves. I have to ask you, are you then truly a sincere Christian? Not the hypocrite, not the legalist, not the evangelical hypocrite, but a true Christian. And for the record, a thankful heart, just to reiterate, a thankful heart does not show itself in giving thanks once in a while over the dinner table, or in private devotion, or when when things go well, or, or rather, this is a posture. It is a thankful heart filled with thanksgiving all the time. When you wake up in the morning, and you stand upright, thanks be to God. When you take a breath, and you see how God has worked in your life, and working in your life, how can you not thank God? Because thanksgiving is the exercise of love and faith for all that God is, And in all that God does, the sincere contemplation of the mercy of God must result in a brokenness to the point of obedience and then the point of worship and then the point of praise and finally the point of thanksgiving. And this is to be expanded further to include a love toward neighbor which Jesus declares as the second great commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself. This is how we show God that we are thankful. But in the most simplest of phrases, 
to answer the question, how do we show God that we are thankful? We give back. We give back. Now note this. We cannot give God anything. Can we give God anything? Cows on a thousand hills are His. He's not going to worry about a bullock. It's all His. He's the He's got the world. He doesn't need anything from us. We cannot give anything to God that He needs. So we thank Him for what He has given us. But there is an aspect of giving back. How do you give back? You love your neighbor as yourself. You serve the church, which is the body of the living Christ. That's how you give back. You don't come and take. You don't come and and reap in all the benefits and not give back. Say, gee, thank you. Thank you for that great sermon on Thanksgiving. Let me now just wallow in my thankfulness and never give back because that shows in sincerity. The commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, teaches us that the hypocrite's thanksgiving, if he shows any sign of being thankful at all, only goes as far as himself and not to his neighbor. I'm thankful that God's done this for me. I'm thankful that God has done the other thing for my family, and this and the other thing and that. But will they give back? Permit me to give some concrete examples on how this translates into the real world. How do we give back? Well, let's use marriage. If husbands really loved God, then they would love their wives as themselves. And this means when you see your wife wrestling with your children, or doing the housework, or or the finances, or this thing or that thing, and you do not step in to help, you are a hypocrite. I've known men that would come home after a long day of work and see their wives toiling with the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten children. And they'd sit down on the big easy chair with their Bible, and they wanted to be holy. I'm going to be very holy now, my love. I'll wait for dinner. Just call me when it's ready. Hypocrite! Reprobate! The same goes for wives. When you see your husband stressed from the cares of this world and you do not aid him by comforting him, by comforting him, and you too are not doing your job as well. You're acting wrongly. This also be applied to your children, you young people. Are you really thankful that you've been brought into this world in a Christian home? You could have been out on the street horribly afflicted with wickedness and yet are we that thankful? You show your love for God in the way you show your love toward the brethren first and then the larger community. In other words, you serve the church. You want to give back to the faithful preaching? If you deem this is faithful preaching, then fine. If not, then you shouldn't be here. You see, there's a malady in the Christian church, particularly among those of the Reformed persuasion. The great Puritan Thomas Vincent explains that it is love toward God that excites all other reactions, and in this case, thanksgiving and love toward neighbor. And notice what he does. He lists eight considerations, because the Puritans were very practical. They said, here's what you do. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No excuse, here's what you do. And each one of those built on the others. So he lists eight considerations for the Christian to contemplate, which can be used to encourage and excite the heart and the mind to love God 
and give him thanks. First, he says that thanksgiving out of a pure and loving heart is the Christian's duty. You want to be obedient? Encourage a posture of being thankful. It is the will of God. It is a commandment of the sovereign king of the universe that you humble yourself and bless him daily, moment by moment, by thanking him. Secondly, Vincent says this, Thanksgiving is a privilege. Just think, you you have been privileged to thank the God of your salvation. Those who honestly and sincerely thank God do so out of the Spirit's prodding. And that is the highest privilege that you, through the mediation of Christ, you can access the throne of God and give God the creator of the universe and your redemptive position thanks. Who could do that? Honestly, who could do that? Can the reprobates of this world have access to the throne of the creator of the universe and give him thanks? No, they're unthankful. They're thankless. But we have this privilege, the highest privilege, which is moved by the spirit of grace. The privilege is that we have been given something from God that we were not able to give to ourselves, and it is a great privilege. And think of it, God has given you something that you didn't have before, and moreover, that you never deserved in the first place. You have now a heart to love Him. You have a heart to thank Him. You have a heart to worship Him and praise Him and pray to Him. What a great privilege. Third, it is a great honor. We have a great honor to be able to thank God. We have God as our God. We have God as our Father. He is also the universal King of the universe. Think about it. The judge of all the earth. We are His children. And He gives only to His own. He confers upon His own such a great blessing. This great honor, which in turn allows us to thank Him for such a mercy. Number four, there's great wisdom in rendering thanksgiving to God. It is our wisdom. Whenever we render thanks to God, it should impress upon our minds exactly who God is, and that is wise, because we remember who is our benefactor, not the state, God. Fifth, there's also an excellency in thanking God. Knowing that God is well pleased with thanking Him, that knowledge in and of itself is an excellency of knowledge and understanding. Paul tells the Philippians this. In Philippians 3.8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I'm not so sure that any of us can really testify like Paul. Are we ready to sacrifice all of our worldly goods? so that we might win Christ? Are we ready to sacrifice our time, our energy for the Christ? Number six, there is a necessity of giving thanks. The rendering of thanksgiving is a character dynamic of the regenerate. It is a necessary attribute for without which you must remain doubtful of your conversion. Number seven, there is a usefulness in the giving of thanks. It reminds us that He is generous because we are needy. We must be so ever conscious of our need for His charity by accepting our poverty of 
of body, soul, and spirit in light of the grace that has been given to us, we, out of sincere necessity, should be giving thanks. And finally, thanksgiving for the sincere is a delight. It should be a delightful practice. It shouldn't be a drudgery. We shouldn't have to be reminded of being thankful. The Christian should naturally take delight in thanking God, knowing that God delights in hearing our thanksgiving. He delights in us. When we are sincerely grateful, God delights in us. Giving of thanks should be our ultimate delight. As the Apostle declares, and as all of us should likewise declare, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Amen and amen. May the Christian community take a renewed consideration. May you take a renewed consideration as to the importance and necessity and delight of thanksgiving. For this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.